I'm very grateful for you being here. Uh, I'm, I recognize that I'm going to come a little bit from my own perspective, so uh, you've heard a little bit of who I am. But with me today are uh, three other military chaplains. There is, um, so Chris, I'm not sure Chris is here, I can't see Chris. Chris is a Royal Naval Chaplain, and the Navy is different from the Army. Uh, I, I assure you, Chris is not used to solid ground and, and things not moving and all that kind of stuff. Um, that Maggie, as, as she's just about to come, so Maggie is a reserve chaplain. So she uh, is a hospital chaplain as well as uh, a military chaplain and balances both of those. And, uh, and Rob, Rob is with me. Uh, Rob is uh, an Elim minister, background, lots and lots of experience as an Elim minister. Brand new into the uh, the army last year or so, so he's kind of finding his way through, and he's at a regimental level. I'm at a brigade level, which is which is again somewhat different. So with different experiences. So afterwards, you know, if you if you are interested or if we can help you in any way, then then come and talk to us, uh, and we give a different perspective. My wife is sat there now. She's a little bit nervous because um, she was just told that she's going to participate, uh, but she didn't realise that. But um, the spouses. It's probably typical of ministry. Spouses in ministry uh, have some considerable challenges that are, uh, are there. And, and trust me, military, military spouses, um, they deserve the medals way more than anyone else uh, because of the challenges they go through. And, and uh, Sarah is here and would happily talk to you offline uh, about that. She just wouldn't want to come up to the front right now, would you, honey? Um, so I'm going to talk uh, from my perspective. By all means, if you have a pressing question, ask that question. Put your hand up if you want. We're not in school, but you know, it just in case I can't see you, I don't know. I'm not wearing my glasses, um, but it will have time for questions at the end. I was told I had. Well, I thought I was told I had an hour and a half. Maybe that was wishful thinking. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a preacher, and uh, I also noticed there's no clocks in this place. So uh, let's see how it goes, shall we? Yeah, tea, tea time will be about six o'clock. Um, so what I want to talk about is is four things really, but I want to talk about chaplaincy, not actually just military chaplaincy. I, I'm always fascinated about chaplaincy as a concept, as a whole thing, and I think that's really the message for us as a, as a church, because you know very few people are called to be military chaplains, but as I'm going to argue, that the chaplaincy itself is a huge um, opportunity for, for the church. Um, and just to kind of give you a bit of a background, so Martin of Tours was a Roman cavalry officer. He became a Christian at the age of 10. Um, he followed his father into the military. One day, he's dra traveling along, and I think it was near the French city of Amiens. He sees, a, he sees a, a destitute man, freezing cold. He takes his cavalry cloak, which is a big cloak. It covers your horse as well as you, cuts it in half, gives half to the, uh, the freezing man, and then rides off. And, you know, it's a big cloak. He kept some of it himself. I think that's a great pattern of ministry. You've got to look after yourself in order to minister to others. But So he does that. He makes a sacrifice, but it's not completely uh, off the wall. Um, he and then eventually becomes a, a monk and a Christian bishop uh, and then dies. His cloak is taken as an example to the early church of, of sacrifice, of dedication, of serving uh, people. And the, the Latin for cloak is capa or chapa, chapa. And the people that look after his cloak are called chaplains. And the place where it resides initially is a chapel, which is where those words come from. But very quickly, that becomes a thing for the military. So priests and clergy ministers working in the military become known as chaplains. And that's where that uh, term comes from. Now, there's another term, which is also padre. Now, that comes from uh, Gibraltar, from the Peninsular Wars, when... 
the, um, the, 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 the British soldiers looked at the Roman Catholic padres, fathers, and they looked at the Church of England, as it was entirely then, uh, chaplains. The Church of England chaplains, educated in Oxford, plum Oxford accents, sons of lords, quite distant, ate with the officers. The Roman Catholic chaplains, the padres, they were living with the soldiers, talking in normal language, and, and the British army very quickly realized that's what it wants from its chaplains. They want people who walk alongside, live alongside, serve the soldiers. And so I, we are chaplains, official title, but actually the soldiers call us padre. And so those kind of things, I think, very actually quite moving historical kind of issues, but they speak to what a chaplain or a padre does. Uh, why is all this important? Well, as I said earlier, the church is in decline. It, it is in, in, the, in the West is in decline. Maybe as, as a denomination that hasn't affected you, but the, 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 the global church, the universal church, as it were, is affected by that. Uh, today, something like 30% of people over 75 identify as Church of England, less than 1% of uh, 18 to 20 fives identify as Church of England. That's just that denomination, which for the state church is, is pretty big. And what that means is our churches are progressively looking older and older because young people are not coming in as, as older folk are, uh, are kind of getting older. And what it means is those churches ultimately are dying because there isn't that life coming through, uh, you know, by that kind of natural organic means. Um, and and Yet at the same time, and that's, that's the situation across Western Europe. But what you do find is that chaplaincy is on the increase. Now, if you Google uh, chaplaincy or gro chaplaincy growth, you will find lots of articles, some academic, some in newspapers or magazines, lots of things about the demand for spiritual input and predominantly, interestingly, Christian input, though it can be uh, other religions, but predominantly Christian. And there is a real demand for that. A couple of years ago, I think 2019, a survey found that 21% of Americans had had contact with a chaplain in the previous year, most, most through medical uh, avenues, but 21% of about 400 million people, that's a lot of people, had encountered a chaplain. But I don't know the statistic, but much fewer than that had actually been to, to church. And uh, Denmark is an interesting one. There's a great academic study if you're into that. Uh, it's online, it's free online. But Denmark is very similar to the UK. It, it has a state church, it has a long history of church, but only less than 2% of people go to church on a, uh, on a weekly uh, basis. And yet, and, and that, that study shows uh, it demonstratively, demonstratively um, shows that chaplaincy in the military, in schools, in all kinds of areas, is on the increase quite dramatically. And it's always, it's always kind of a relief when you can find a British survey, and there's a number of actually British surveys have been taken, but Theos is a great uh, resource for the Christian Church, a think tank that provides uh, some research. And they did a survey of chaplaincy, and they found, again, the anomaly that as society is becoming increasingly secular, the demand for chaplaincy is, is, is exploding, it's blossoming. And, and this was a survey that came up with something like 46, um, sorry, 45 uh, avenues for chaplaincy at present from things like casinos, obviously schools, universities, um, you know, military, hospitals, all that kind of thing. Casinos, 
um, and I've just met a colleague who's, who's working as a chaplain to a, a medical uh, provider, a medical company. You know, it, it's just fascinating that government, um, industry, and, and society are looking for spiritual leadership, and they're looking for spiritual input and, and pastoral care. Um, and I think it's profound. None of that actually should take us by surprise, because I think if you go back to, to you know, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, it was the church that provided the kind of glue that held society together and, and the supportive element in society. And then Henry VIII messed it all up. And then, and then you get, you know, through the kind of 17th, 18th, 19th century, who is it that establishes prisons, hospitals, schools, um, you know, charitable kind of input into society? Who supports society, especially those in need? And it's the Christian church. Now, you know, maybe through the rise of the welfare state, that diminishes, but we find ourselves in a situation now where I think, you know, we have a declining public purse, um, you know, we've gone through years of austerity, but we also, I think, have a, a, a realization that materialism and, and humanism is pretty empty. It's pretty dry. It's pretty, you know, it has massive limits, and the human condition is, is deeper and greater than that, and people are, are looking for much more than what is on offer in, in the world. Uh, let me give you a bit of a view of the military chaplaincy. So, um, I, you know, from the, and this is my perspective, so please do talk to some of my colleagues who will give uh, a different perspective, and talk to my wife who will give the perspective, the correct one. Um, but, you know, as I say, 9-11 kicked off. I, I began to encounter military chaplains who were heading off to work with military people and go, you know, go alongside them, but serve in some of the most demanding places in the uh, in the world. And, and as I say, you know, that idea of the boat that the disciples were in being an image of the church, of, of a place to fish from, you know, a place to minister to from, relatively safe. The sea, it, biblically, is a picture of the world in turmoil. It's often used in that case. And, and there is Jesus. And where is he? He's not in the boat. And we've just had a fantastic session, haven't we, where we were told to do something about that. And, and you know, so the, the short of it was I, I took my family, uh, four children, off to Germany and then dumped them in Germany into a military community, complete culture change, and then I was off into Iraq, uh, boots on the ground. And, and very quickly what I found, and this is... This is this is military chaplaincy, but there are elements of this that are true for all kinds of chaplaincies. It's very much a ministry of presence. You are with people. We, talk, we use that word incarnation. That's the strength of it. You know, as we said, there are sect, whole sects of society that would not come through our church doors. So how do, we, how do we kind of go and be salt and light? How do we take the gospel? You've got to go and somehow walk alongside them. And uh, being with people is, is hugely important. And, if, you know, for me, in the military, it's pretty easy because, I mean, those situations, for instance, I don't have a weapon. They think that's entirely crazy. They talk to me about it. Why are you here? And I, I say, I'm here to look after you. And, and they get that. And, and you know, those, those conversations begin. And that's true in barracks, and it's true on exercise uh, and all of those things. And I think over time, they get to know you. There is a challenge there because... You know, you're with people who are looking at you, and you're living with them, and they know you first thing in the morning and last thing at night, and they, they see you. So, you know, you have to be really honest that Christianity isn't for saints. It's not for perfect people. It's not, it's not you know, I'm not holier than anyone else. I am the worst of sinners. 
But I think that honesty is, is part of the gospel, isn't it? It is that, you know, we all need Jesus in that sense. Um, there is a sense of always being on duty. So uh, even now we'll have uh, mobile phones and be accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We choose that. Not every chaplaincy. Some chaplaincies work in teams uh, and do that. But it, for me, I, I, it is brilliant. It is the best thing in the world, the best job in the world. I don't know what you do for a living, but I do the best job in the world. Um, there is an all-souls focus. Again, not in, always for every aspect of chaplaincy, but, but for lots. Even the most fervent Muslim and the most ardent humanist or atheist, I am their chaplain. If I'm on the ground, I am their chaplain. I'm there to look after them, love them, serve them. They know that, and they want that, generally. You, you know, on operations in church, you know, I'll have the Muslims come along because at least I'm talking about something spiritual. I'll have the humanists come along to try and pick holes in me and then have conversations afterwards over lunch or something like that. You know, it, it is a powerful way of going. And, and the kind of denominational thing kind of drops away. No one's really that interested outside of our denominations, sorry. Um, but, but that is the reality. However, and this is really important, and I, I think this is probably true of m most chaplaincies, there is a theolo theological integrity. I have never been asked to do anything that I'm not comfortable with, theologically, doctrinally. Um, I have to be circumspect, I have to be diplomatic, but I am, I am very free to be who God has called me to be. And the army gets that, but there are, there, are, there are limits, you know, and ways in which I have to negotiate working in that. But I am free. I do not entirely compromise uh, in what I do. But, and, and again, talking to my colleagues earlier, it, it's always clear to us, you've got to be really creative. Um, you've got to work out ways in which you do your ministry. And there's a lot of tactical patience. You know, I, I love watching Billy Graham and, and hearing his sermons and think, you know, if only I could gather 20,000 people in an auditorium, you know, what, what a great way of doing that. But actually, I, I don't know, someone once said that, that it takes two, two years from someone first hearing the gospel to committing their lives to Christ. I don't know whether that's true or even you can even measure it. But, you know, tactical patience is true for all of us, I think, and when we're building relationships and to some extent breaking down barriers, maybe healing people, but, you know, winning an opportunity. Let me tell you about the, the chaplain's mountain. The Navy guy isn't here, so uh, army is the way forward. Um, but is he here? No, he's not. No. Um, <laughs> so the, every regiment in the British Army, going back hundreds of years, has a prayer that had been designed for it and speaks about what it does as a job and asks God to help it, to do that job well, to do it right, and to do it, it such that it brings greater good. And, and the chaplain's department has a prayer, and effectively it is that we, we look after the glorious gospel that is entrusted to us. And I think that's powerful. Again, I remind you, the UK government pays my salary, but that is what the army is, is happy to take me on those terms. So in terms of compromise, it's not huge. However, how I do my job is down to the mission statement. And I think all of us would be something around this idea that we do spiritual stuff, we do pastoral stuff, and we do some kind of ethical, moral uh, kind of, of teaching. So the spiritual focus, uh, that, that's me in Iraq with, uh, with a bunch of people about to go to a very hairy place, uh, and, and they want me to pray with them before what we do. They also wanted me to bless vehicles. There's all kinds of theological issues around blessing tanks. Um, but, but we can talk about that offline. Um, but, yeah. 
But one thing that gets me is how superstitious people are. And soldiers are incredibly superstitious. And, and you know, I've got pictures of, of all kinds of tattoos, um, it, 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 you know, of, of scripture verses and, you know, pictures of saints and Mary and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and I think there is an element, again, where people made in the image of God, fallen from God, separated, you know, something missing in our lives, and yet we know we're searching for it. And I think that's that's really important. You know, soldiers always want the chaplain to travel in their vehicle, because if you travel in their vehicle, their vehicle will not be hit. Now, my experience is that's true, believe it or not. I'm not superstitious, but, but we'd be shot at, or, you know, bombs will go off, but I, I'm here. Um, so, so maybe it is true. But there is a kind of spiritual vagueness that wraps around people in the world. Now, let me ask you this question. How small is a mustard seed? Because if we're talking about faith as small as a mustard seed, you know, what's that mean? How, mustard seeds are tiny. So if someone is willing to put their, their trust in you, now, I, sorry, I did bring one with me, it's in my bag, I won't get it out, but little, little Bibles. I've given hundreds, if not thousands, of little New Testament and Psalms out, uh, and they're kindly given by a military charity, and, and people take them. Now, you know, I tell them they fit in their top pocket and they're bulletproof, but m- maybe that's one reason. But the other thing is, when you're on operations, you don't have your iPad, you don't have your Xbox, you don't have your girlfriend, you don't have your, your, your car and the weekends off. You're, you're away from everything. Guys start reading anything and everything. Um, but they also, there is that spiritual searching, that, that sense that, that there is something more necessary in life. Now, the thing about soldiers is that... Um, they put their lives on the line for their country. They are asked by their country to take that ultimate risk. That, that's what they join up for, and we make that very clear from, from basic training. And they're willing to do that. And we ask them as a country to do that. Um, they abandon all comforts. They say, you know, you can talk to my wife. I, I've left my wife for years um, and gone off, and she's not known whether I'm coming back or not. That's pretty hard. I'm out there, and I'm a little more in control of what I'm doing, but she isn't. And, and so she suffers in that regard. And, and that's what soldiers do. They, will, they, they do that. And they also, soldiers, are trained to take the life of someone else. Now, there's a lot of work going on at the moment uh, in our field about uh, moral injury and the fact that actually it's not normal for a human being to take someone's life. And there's an impact when someone does, generally. And, and, and people can... I've, I've, Talk to people who've carried stuff. They've done their job. They've done it well. They've saved lives, but they've taken a life. They've taken lives, and they will carry that the rest of their lives as a, a huge weight, a huge burden. Um, and we ask them to do that as a nation. And that's why I think, particularly in the military, that we look for military chaplains to help people work out those kind of issues, which are, you know, the medical side of things, the, the psychiatric side of things, the, the kind of ch- teaching mental resilience is all well and good but there's a limit to even all of that. And, and there's, a, there's kind of the spiritual, there's a gap, there's that indefinable. That, that, um, that there's a guy called, um, I haven't got it there, but Field Marshal Slim, who um, helped the British win in Burma against the Japanese in the Second World War. And he, he was a kind of religious guy, and he said that end, at the end of the day, when all the physical stuff and all the training and everything, all, all the equipment falls away, what's left that helps a person continue to fight through countless days and weeks and months to the end is the spiritual. And, and I think the world struggles to define what spirituality is, but it is that that gets us 
beyond ourselves and, and there's a connection with the other, whatever that is. Now, you can see in that kind of language and that space, there's opportunity for someone uh, who knows what, what all that is to be able to come and, and to minister and to find opportunities. Um, so, so the spiritual side of things is, is huge. And, 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 of course, I do do stuff. I do weddings and baptisms and, and all the kind of passage, rites of passage uh, as a matter of course. But actually, for me, the most... Um, so, so the, the most interesting thing, I, I just bring that to you, Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in the hearts of men, and yet we're searching for him. Um, as Paul says, he is not far from any of us. This is applying not to, to Christians in the church. This is applying to the world, isn't it? And I love that, that verse from C.S. Lewis where he says, you know, if I find myself having a desire at which no experience of this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Now, you and I minister to people who are made for another world. That, they can't escape that. They can deny it, but they can't escape it. And that's the environment. That's why, you know, an entire regiment turns up for prayers and asks me to, uh, to bless them as they, they're about to go possibly on a one-way journey. Um, and, and what I do find, and, and we'll all find the same, that on operations or on exercise when we're away and we're vulnerable, that church attendance blossoms that people who would never come to church want some spiritual input. And what, one of the most rewarding times for me was when I was in uh, training, basic training. I, I was in a place called Bassingbourne. I've done it a number of times, but Bassingbourne is a good example. I had 17 to 34-year-olds, 12-week courses. These are intensive basic training courses. If you watch the, uh, you watch the basic training on TV, it's worse than that. Um, and, and it's six and a half days a week. They have Sunday mornings off from, from till midday, and they can do anything. They can stay in bed, they can, do, they can do nothing. You know, that's their time, which is quite precious, particularly to young people. I, I ran a church, and for a year and a half, with all these 12-week courses going through, I had between 40 and, and 50 young people coming to church. It may have been the tea and biscuits, it may have been my wife, it, it may have, but, you know, we, we preached the gospel, we ended up baptizing people, and, and, and people made commitments. And, and I don't I know why. I don't know. I'm not that good. You know, it wasn't me. It, it was, it, there was something about that, those 12-week courses for a year and a half. And all my colleagues who work in basic training will say the same thing is, is true, which I think for us is a powerful encouragement uh, to the work. So, you know, church on operations, whatever, however ugly it looks, uh, is, is a powerful place uh, for people. Now, 95% of my work is actually pastoral. It, it, it's looking after people and, and often is not, not mentioning religion at, at all. And this is what the army is generally looking for. Um, the, the army looks to me to make soldiers happy so they go off and do their job as a soldier. Now, you could see that, that I'm there to increase the military effectiveness, which, as a non-combatant, is a bit of a challenge. But as one guy once said, I'm not there to oil the gears of war, but I am there to, to deal with those caught up in that. And that's, that's why chaplains join. That's what the chaplains department is focused upon, is, is looking after people. But the army, and I think this is true of, of most chaplaincies, they want something from us. And predominantly, they want a kind of welfare function. They, they want some wisdom. They want someone who's outside of the system to give kind of a critical friendship. Uh, they want morale. They want me to cheer people up and, and help people who are going through cha challenging times. Uh, they do want an element of spirituality. B 
But what's interesting is, you know, God's called me to something slightly different. And somewhere in that, I've got to kind of find a compromise, a balance, a, you know, a kind of diplomatic way, uh, a way forward. And the Danish research finds exactly the same. Chaplains have to negotiate standing one foot in the church, one foot in the world. And, and you know, there are compromises. So, you know, uh, they're, they're, in that picture, it's like, where's Wally? In that picture is an Elim minister. Can you spot him? Yeah. You know, the giant grin gives it away, doesn't it? You know, he's got something. He's got something that, that other people want. Um, probably Haribo. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I'm a Baptist minister. We, we, we kind of, well, nowadays it's kind of, we don't even iron our shirts, uh, you, you know. Uh, but here I am wearing, you know, clerical dress and, and all kinds of regalia. I, I am a, increasingly seeing the value of wearing a clerical shirt, uh, particularly in certain contexts as a uniform, because people can look at me now and say, I know what you are. And, and often as not, it's, it's an attractive thing in the sense that, you know, it breaks down barriers, no need to explain stuff, I'm straight in to, to help people. Uh, but that's a kind of compromise for me from a, from a theological perspective. Um, I, I think in terms of um, ministering to people, that, that was a one, one gathering for a, a, a kind of thanksgiving and kind of um, uh, uh, remembrance service. There are people there from lots of different countries. There are very, very senior people. There are diplomats. I've got to be quite careful what I say. Having said that, actually, I can be quite clear with the gospel, um, you know, and particularly, for instance, in remembrance, that the only hope for true peace is Christ. And I'll say that, you know, and, and uh, there is that opportunity. But, you know, there are some things that I can't, you know, we look around issues of gender and sexuality. Uh, if those two are separate things. Uh, and, and there's a real challenge in, in a today's culture. And people, you know, wear their emotions very much out the front. You know, so even having a conversation is quite difficult. And so there are times when I don't talk about things or that I, I, I kind of have a tactical patience and, and get them to know me and find an appropriate situation. You know, uh, proselytizing is, is an anathema to our modern generation. Because, you know, for me to go to, say, a Muslim and say, you know, there is something missing in what you're believing, or go to a, to a Jewish chap and say there's something, you know, you need Jesus, would, would be, you know, would be wrong of me to do that. But what I do find is the military are very happy for me to run Alpha courses or Christianity Explored or, you know, some of my colleagues will run tent missions. So it's finding those kind of ways forward that are appropriate and, and just kind of being patient. But, you know, the, the incredible thing is, in all of this, the Holy Spirit is ahead of me. And, and again, talking to my colleagues in morning, this morning, uh, I mean, Rob was talking about a situation where, you know, the, the Holy Spirit has already opened the door. Uh, and so all I need to do is just be kind of just sensitive to that, walk through it. Um, so, so it doesn't worry me, any of these things. The one, the one place where generally there's no controversy at all is death and dying. Uh, and I think this is really interesting. So I am subject matter expert for the military in death, dying, grief, and bereavement, and, and, and those things, in part because of, of a massive experience of those things, uh, in part because when it does happen, it's, it's tragic, it's young people uh, in the prime of their lives, people who are serving and looking to, by doing what they're doing, save the lives of others, uh, and so on. But, you know, secular society doesn't have the words, the rituals, uh, to, to be able to kind of manage this very well. And, and I, I am not infrequently asked to perform 
or funerals for humanists or people who have declared themselves to be humanist. And particularly if the person who's died has declared themselves to be a humanist. You can't argue with that because they've, they've died. So what you need to do is manage that. And once you start talking to people and, and working out what actually they think that I was going to do and, and as a Christian minister, but actually what I can do, uh, you know, the barriers come down. And, and I've never had an issue where, you know, God hasn't been present and, and there has been some hope out of, out of, you know, terrible, terrible situations. And, you know, when you say to soldiers, greater love is no man than this, then he lay down his life for his friends, they go, that's talking about us. We get that, you know, and, and of course, what a segue that is into the whole gospel uh, and so on. Uh, another final part of, of what we do is moral leadership. Now, that's not because um, chaplains are, are the most moral people in the world. Uh, obviously, we're, we're, people would hope that we are we have a set of morals and values. We study ethics and all of that kind of thing. But again, the world struggles. You know, relativism is not great, particularly when it comes to taking other people's lives and, and so on. So we're there to challenge people. And the army wants us to help them think through what good living is like. And particularly on the battlefield, practically, if, if we do war crimes... It, it ruins everything else. It messes everything up. It, it is horrendous uh, in terms of wanting to win a battle or win a war, win the peace, win hearts and minds. You, you know, tr treating people, even your enemies, badly is not a long-term goal. And, and the British Army puts, generally puts their, their money where their mouth is and, and employs us to teach core values. So, for instance, you, you, take, you take a bunch of people from around the world, around the Commonwealth, bring them together, all kinds of social levels, educational levels, and you get them to work together as a team. How do you do that? One of the things is, is a shared set of values, and that's what we, we talk to people about. And, and, and those are very Christian values, and they're powerful. And, and for me, I, I think they are, they are incredibly powerful values. And they actually help people, even if they don't necessarily like or agree or understand one another, they help people find common cause and work together. And, and chaplains are seen as, as, as doing that. Now, that's what we do. So spiritual, uh, moral, and pastoral uh, kind of work. And I think that's probably true of lots of chaplaincy uh, to varying degrees in different ways. But let me, uh, sorry, that's just one final thing. So when we're teaching values, it's really interesting when you start talking about values as being normal. So for instance, courage. That's not for superhuman people or for you know, soldiers who win medals. That's for normal people. Recklessness, obviously cowardice, no one wants cowardice, but recklessness is not good either. So actually, it's normal to be courageous. It's normal to be scared, but being scared and putting one foot in front of the other is courage. So it's actually normal to be courageous. And when you start going along that line, I know it's not strictly about Jesus, but you start to build up a kind of value system, right and wrong, you know, a structure, a framework, moving away from that kind of moral relativism and all of that kind of stuff. But more than that, you're also coming across, hopefully, as someone with something to offer that then opens other avenues. Two, two final things uh, which uh, I will draw close. One is just to say, again, society wants chaplaincy. Um, and uh, there are two things, oh, sorry, a number of things. So 20 years ago, there was an investigation done by the army into spiritual needs. This was not done by chaplains. It was not about chaplains. It was just, we asked people, 
to put their lives on the line. We ask them to take life. What do, we, what do we need in terms of spirituality in the army? And what they found was that soldiers need spiritual input, primarily for community. There's something about Christianity or, or sorry, something about faith that brings community. And that's, that was seen as being powerful. Um, there's something about spirituality, as I say, that gets you to go above and beyond. And that's, that's core to what the army needs to do. And there's also a need for chaplains. He came out and said, we need more chaplains. And so, so there, was a, there was a kind of input into chaplaincy needs. Now, roll on nearly 20 years later, there was a massive uh, workshop done at Santos Military Academy a little while back. And they were looking at something slightly different. But the fact that we've been through a whole number of wars from the Balkans through to, uh, to the Middle East that had some religious dimension. And the, the results of this massive workshop, which is predominantly an academic workshop, a military workshop, not chaplains, not Christian, was that the majority of the world, 96% of the world, is religious. And the, the Western world is less so. But the majority of the world where we operate is definitely religious. And religion has a role sometimes in tribal identity and, and societal identity and, and can be seen as being a cause of war, which is not entirely true, but it can impact that. But also, when everything else falls apart for people, often what is left is purely religious. And, and that can bind, again, people together in terms of community. And the big result was if the, the military, the British military and the NATO military doesn't understand the, the power, the value of religion to the majority of the world, vast majority of the world, then we are going to get everything wrong in so many ways. And we, we've seen that in various things, and that was what the driver was. So again, this is, the, this is the world looking at the value of religious input. And again, the idea was that we need more chaplains. And, and then um, a little while after that, again, the, chap, the question keeps coming up about humanist chaplains. Um, and, and what they might have to offer, but then also about other faiths. And again, the chaplain, uh, chaplain's department for Army, Navy, and Air Force proposed ways of, of solving this, of bringing, uh, particularly in the reserves, imams, uh, uh, Buddhist priests, and so on, to come and be chaplains, to be advisors and supportive. But what the Army turned around and said, which was interesting, I don't know what the Navy and the Air Force said, but the Army said, and this is the, like the top generals and the senior leadership, they said, what we want is Christian chaplaincy. Predominantly, regular chaplains must be Christian chaplains because Christians look after the widest population. They look after everybody. The, the imam looks after Muslims. The, the, the Hindu priest looks after Hindus. The Christian, something in our theology of, of, of the Good Samaritan or giving a glass of water to the needy or whatever it is, something in that, serving the world, God so loved the world, we do looking after the, the everybody in, in a powerful way. This is the world. This is secular society saying we want chaplaincy. So finally, my uh, response to you, and I said this earlier, great commandment, um, you know, love God and love one another, and the great commission, go into the world. And, uh, and you put those two together, and, uh, you know, that is, that is what chaplaincy is about. Um, and I think, and this is really key, I think, you know, you're all church leaders from a leadership perspective. The church should own chaplaincy as a concept and as an opportunity. 
you know, to, to train people in your congregation, disciple, as we were just told, to commission them, to support them. Not all chaplains are paid. Not all chaplaincies can, can support. I was talking to a, a fellow earlier who's a police chaplain, quite surprised. There's no money in the budget, but he still does his job uh, as a police chaplain. You know, as the church, we should be supporting and facilitating. This is an aspect of mission. This is sending people out from us into the world. And, and the powerful thing is that chaplains are skilled at navigating the world, at navigating other religions, at navigating um, you know, cultural issues uh, and, and that kind of diplomacy and what that needs, but also the, the, just the secular environment that, that scares the church quite a lot. You know? um, but we are good at it. We spend our lives working in that environment, and we have something to offer to the church one way and the other. So I, I think that's my, uh, that, that's my real challenge to you. You know, if young people are not coming to church, how are we going to meet young people? We have vacancies up and down the country for Army, Navy, and Air Force cadet chaplains. And, and those are guys uh, or girls who can just go along and, and you know, look after cadets meet, meet say, one night on a, on, a week, uh, on a week or maybe a weekend every month or something like that, and that you might have, like, 100, 150 young people uh, from 13 to 18. Uh, I mean, if you've got too many of those in your church already, then fine, you know? But there is an opportunity. It is an open door, uh, and, and people are looking for that. You, you know, and that's just one thing. That's just one aspect of chaplaincy. Why would we not want to embrace that as, as a church, as, as a mission, you know? Um, and, and finally, uh, so the guy who wrote the Theos report, uh, I mean, basically he's saying, you know, chaplaincy is a very modern ministry suited to British society, suited to a postmodern world, a post-Christian world, a very confused world, uh, and, uh, and it is a, a place that, uh, uh, that we should be looking at. And I finish uh, uh, with, with words of a First World War chaplain to a colleague who just arrived in theater. And what he says to him is, he says, listen, the worst place for you to be is back in the place of safety. You need to be at the front line, walking up and down the trenches, into no man's land, taking the risks, sharing the risks. And he said there's very little purely spiritual work. It's all muddled and mixed, but actually it's all spiritual. You know, where, where do we, you know, in the church we're very good at dividing secular and sacred. Uh, you, you know, uh, the, the spiritual and the worldly. Well, actually, God, is God not pervading everything that exists? You know, so we can find, and I say the Holy Spirit's gone before us anyway. You know, take a box of cigarettes. Nowadays, it's Haribo or Werther's Originals, and, and a great deal of love in your heart. Laugh with them, joke with them, pray with them sometimes, but pray for them always. And I've got to be honest, I'm sure every chaplain in the room would say that's, that's our experience. You know, it's, it's not all kind of, you know, Billy Graham kind of evangelism. It is more often than not just loving, serving, walking with people, suffering with them. Um, but what a powerful opportunity when the opportunities do come. So that, that's, that's my whistle-stop tour through, uh, through chaplaincy. I hope that's useful to you.